Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, October 24th, we're studying Amos chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. The prophet has already spoken the Lord's judgment against seven nations, but he isn't done. Now, in the eighth and the climactic text of this series of eight, Amos turns to speak the Lord's judgment against Israel. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Philip Hoppe. Pastor Hoppe serves at Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota. Pastor Hoppe, welcome back to Sharper Iron. So glad to be with you again today and look at this text with you today. Pastor Hoppe, you've got a, a quote here in your notes from Martin Luther, and Luther says that everything that comes before this in Amos is just a prelude to the real message that the prophet has for us. So what does Luther mean by that? What has Amos been doing up to this point? What's he, what's he leading up to that we're going to see in today's text? Yeah, I suppose it, it shouldn't surprise us that Luther, we know with his, his love of music here, kind of, uh, you know, it uses a, a term here. I mean, prelude could be used in different ways, but sort of a musical term in one way here, that this, everything else before then has sort of just been setting the stage, getting ready for uh, when uh, the actual uh, event, or uh, in the context of a, a Christian worship, I would say the prelude leads to the actual service. And so uh, what Luther is indicating here is that everything else that has gone before, while important and while sort of setting the stage, is not really... Uh, why the Lord sent uh, forth these words to the prophet Amos, that um, while he did speak these words of judgment against these other uh, nations, that his real purpose in sending this prophecy forth was to talk to his people living uh, in Israel, in that northern kingdom. Uh, and so uh, I, I know one of your former guests had said, and, and uh, perhaps more than one, that you know often an image used of Amos here is this one of sort of a, you know, a, a noose being tightened, you know, kind of starting off with the surrounding nations, uh, and then all of a sudden pulling tight on on the people of God. And I guess we could say today we get to where it gets uh, uncomfortable uh, for the Israelites, uh, regardless of how they viewed the other words of judgment upon the nations, uh, now uh, the word is, is squarely turned at them, uh, and in so doing now, all of a sudden we begin why God had uh, written this or sent forth this word to Amos uh, in the first place. Yeah, that, that's right. Amos here, this is what he's been doing. He's been leading up to this moment, and from here on out, he's really going to be addressing Israel. Now that he's taken the time to address those seven nations surrounding Israel, now he's really going to spend the rest of his book talking to Israel in particular. And so as, as you think about how this text lines up, Pastor Hoppy, how does, and this may be a bit of a, a review from what we've talked about in previous episodes, but but how does Amos accomplish that tightening of the noose here on the people of Israel? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, in, in one way, uh, as we said, he's kind of, he's gone through all these different nations. And one of the particular things I think we'll want to hit today is the fact that even the wording that he uses, um, you know, he, he's talking about the nations and he uses sort of this repetition of, you know, the three and the four uh, in regards to the sins uh, of each of these nations. And so uh, as he's going around each one of these nations, he's, he's using this similar rhythm, this similar wording. Uh, and, uh, you know, so quickly in one way he transfers here, I mean, right before this to Judah, you know, so we could say from the enemies of God to uh, their brother, uh, you know, in the faith uh, here, the southern kingdom of Israel. Uh, and then all of a sudden uh, that same wording just hits the Israelites 
uh, in this way that says now, right? Now, now we're talking about you, and unfortunately, I can address you in the exact same way that I addressed all of these pagan nations. I can use even the same words uh, because, unfortunately, there is not a lot of distinction between them and you in the way that you are uh, living your life and the way that you're regarding uh, who God is. Yeah, the similarity that we've pointed out of of the language that Amos has used now continuing here in this judgment against Israel is very striking and, and would have hit the people really hard, I think, to have that same language used of pagan nations now used of them would have been very surprising, very shocking. And I appreciate how you brought out that this is a very quick turn that Amos makes. He only spent two verses— on Judah. And and then all of a sudden, boom, here comes here comes the judgment against Israel. And so we're going to see that similarity, but we're also going to see some some differences as well, some things that are unique that this oracle against Israel is going to have that some of or that the judgments against these other nations really didn't. And so perhaps the best way to do that, Pastor Oppie, is just to go ahead and read the text and we can point out those similarities and differences as we go along then as we look at it. So this is Amos chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go in to the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. There's the text that we have before us. One of the the differences, I think, that stands out, Pastor Hoppy, is that this judgment against Israel, though it starts with the same language, is much longer than any of the previous judgments. The other judgments mentioned for three or four sins, and you only got one. But here, the Lord says, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And then it seems that he he mentions three or four transgressions, and even more than that. I mean, he's really piling it on Israel, isn't he? He, Yeah, I think certainly he is. And again, as, as far as the actual numbering, it's hard to... You know, again, I, I always say it's sort of like the uh, Ten Words, right, that we get with the Ten Commandments, and uh, you go back to the commandments, and you have to kind of figure out how you how you shuffle those into ten, you know, and, and different Christians have done it differently. Same here, it may be a little hard to figure out exactly if he's trying to point out three and then four, uh, but certainly he is, yeah, he he's going to go to some extent here to list out um, not only the sort of general areas of sin, but but some of the very specific practices of sin, um, and you know I think that's that's always very powerful. I think it's one of the things that in our uh, preaching in our churches, right, sometimes can be found lacking. Right, that we uh, will mention a category of sin, but we don't want to actually name the specific practice within that category. Uh, there can be some wisdom to that in the sense that if you get too specific, you can kind of miss people, right? You you can uh, say a sin that uh, the people are, are in particular are not being uh, engaged in. Uh, but I think here, you know, we see the prophet give us a, a good reason to get specific, because the more specific you get, I guess you could say, again, to use the 
you know, kind of the the idea of that that noose tightening, right? That it's uh, getting tighter and tighter, right? You can say, well, I I don't oppress the poor. Well, what about this? Oh, okay, yep, I did that, right? Uh, so he definitely piles it on, and then the other thing, and we can come back to this later, but all of this in the context, and again, of how much God has done for them, right? With the other nations. They're doing evil things, and God is holding them accountable, for he's the one God over all the nations. Uh, but with Israel, he really is going to press the point here. You're doing this, and after I, I saved you in these magnificent ways, I've given you all this stuff, right? Uh, I think it's actually into chapter 3 where you guys will head next. You know, he, he uses this phrase, you know, this whole family that I brought up out of Egypt. And you really get this point here that uh, God is saying, right, I've, I've become a father to you, and yet this is still how you respond to me, which if the specifics uh, don't bring you to your knees, right, then this idea of that you're not only doing this to some random almighty God in the sky, but you're doing it to the father who saved you, um, it's, it's harsh stuff indeed. It's interesting to see how Amos has been setting this up all along, such that it's going to hit Israel that much harder in these ways. We talked about the last episode where it was talking about to Judah, how their sin in particular, that they rejected the law of the Lord, even though it seemed on paper perhaps not as bad as those terrible transgressions that were listed of those previous six foreign nations, to know the law of the Lord and then to willfully reject it and do the opposite is is much worse. And you're seeing here Amos now build upon that yet again, not only reminding the people of Israel, hey, you had the law of the Lord, but look at what that law of the Lord told you about. It told you all of these wonderful things that God has done for you. And so as he, as he rehearses those things, and we'll talk about them in detail, it, it just makes it all all the worse for the people of Israel. And I, I think that's maybe something we we should point out as, as we think about the differences between what we've got here and the previous seven. In the previous seven, for the most part, you get these really big sins, crimes against humanity, sometimes we've called them. And here in the people of Israel, they're, they're pretty bad, as we're going to see. But Israel hasn't taken a whole people captive as, as and sold them into slavery. Israel hasn't been ripping open pregnant women. Israel's been hurting the poor. And yet, the Lord's going to have even a harsher word to say against them, it would seem, Pastor Hoppy. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, right? The, uh, I mean, to some extent, the sins listed here I mean, they're they're spoken of as communal sins and in, in the communal sins rather in the sense that the people of Israel as a whole are sort of uh, accused of them and condemned of them. And yet, when you kind of I guess imagine what the actual sin is, to some extent they're even a little bit more individual in nature, right? Like individuals taking part in these various practices. Uh, and again, so it can seem less, but I, I think you really hit on it there when you were talking about this idea that when you put in there, right, that they knew the law of the Lord, and not only did they know it in the sense of they had been given it to know and to learn, but through faith, right, they should know that it is good, right, and that it, it is something to be treasured, right? All these psalms just, uh, you know, just go on and on about how blessed the people of God are to have the instruction of the Lord, the law of the Lord in their life, uh, because it, it, it gives them everything, right? It gives them instruction for life. It gives them uh, ultimately, right, life and salvation with God forever. But but when you have something that precious and you mistreat it, right, it's, it is. It's even worse uh, than just doing a more atrocious act in ignorance or in, you know, not having uh, those, those guiding words of, of God, those, you know, those life-giving words of God. So you, you were saying earlier that Amos is going to show us a, perhaps a very good model for preaching, as you said, not only to mention just general sins, greed, etc., but to point out very specific things that are happening among the people. And so as we kind of lay this text out, it would seem verses 6 through 8 is where he really begins to dig into their sins, both general and specific. Help, help us unpack those verses, Pastor Hoppy. 
Sure. I think, you know, in general, we can kind of look um, at two sort of overall uh, categories of sin here. One is uh, sort of related to the, the treatment of uh, the poor uh, or the, um, those that, that have become, you know, impoverished for one reason or another. Uh, but even there, not just, a, a, not just poor for poor's sake, right, but the whole attitude that is going into why they end up treating the poor poorly, right, which is ultimately uh, their, their greed, right? Uh, and then the other one we might say is their sort of licentiousness. They're, uh, they're seeking after all sorts of uh, pleasure. And then wrapped, I guess, wrapped around both of those is sort of this um, this idea that they are not afraid to engage in idolatry of various sorts. And I know you've talked about this uh, somewhat already, at least, that, you know, you've got, uh, of course, these, these golden calves at the two uh, places there in Dan and Bethel, um, which are, you know, originally set up at least supposed to be, right, sort of worship of the true God, but without right idols sitting in them. So you've already got an issue uh, there. And then some of the stuff here at least seems to allude to them also going to the temples of other gods um, and, uh, you know, doing practices there that were uh, terrible as well. And I really think you get a sense in here when he gets into the specifics that he wants to point out that, you know, it's sort of like, well, not only did you do that, but you, you went so far as to do this even, right? You know, there's this, and it kind of goes with that three and four idea that there's sort of a fullness of a sin, and then there's just throwing it in God's face uh, with boldness and with, with a, such an utter lack of repentance. Um, and that's the kind of things that, that we get here is that God is, when we get into the specifics, that he, you know, he's going to say, um, you know, you're, you've really went over the top. So maybe if we can, you know, go into one of the specifics here, you know, it starts off with this idea of, uh, you know, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. So uh, most people think, right, this is mostly related to uh, the practice of, of taking bribes, uh, uh, in court, and then the overall practice of just sort of showing favoritism to the rich, letting the rich sort of uh, buy their way uh, into whatever judgments they want, and therefore the oppressed uh, uh, end up being those that don't have the means. And of course, we can we know that this kind of stuff still happens in in our societies at times as well, uh, where you know we could even say in a case where someone you know doesn't have anyone. Uh, doesn't have the money to to pay the high-priced uh, lawyer uh, to defend them, and the other side does, and sometimes injustice results in those cases. Um, seems like that kind of thing. But here, you know, so it's already bad enough, I think, right, to sell the righteous for silver, right? At least there's a silver is is valuable. Um, so again, if if you at least were among the evildoers, they might say, oh, sure, for silver we might. Uh, do something that's not quite right if we can gain from it. But here he says, and, and the needy for a pair of sandals, right? And, and the pair of sandals here is sort of um, an image of not worth much at all, right? There, there's also this sense, uh, uh, and I admit I don't fully understand this, but there's also this sense in which we see this in the book of Ruth, uh, where there's sort of a sandal past uh, as sort of a legal, a sign of the legal transaction, almost a a modern handshake of sorts. Uh, but I think here, even more than that, even if that's sort of involved, the real idea here is they do this even for something that is, you know, not worth anything. Uh, so it's sinful enough to do it for silver, but you go so far as to do it even for a pair of sandals, this thing that's pretty much useless. Uh, so, it does, you know, whatever, whatever you can get, you think the poor are worth less than that that their lives and their well-being are worth less than a pair of sandals. And so, uh, you know, that's one of the ways he gets into the specifics here of really showing how depraved, again, even though the act might not seem as grave as the others, you see the depravity of it here, I think. Yeah, I mean, as, you, as you're going on there, I'm, I'm reminded a little bit of um, Luther in the, the small catechism, for example, when he's explaining the seventh commandment, and he, he talks about that we should fear and love God so we do not 
take our neighbor's money or possessions or get them in any dishonest way. Yeah. Or, or the ninth commandment that we do not um, scheme to get our neighbor's inheritance or house or get it in a way which only appears right. I mean, I, I think that that ties in here in this this conversation that we're having, because these things may not look that bad on the surface, but but they're really quite terrible because they they neglect the law of the Lord. And and look, I mean, like you point out this pair of sandals, right? I, I think, yeah, maybe there's a, a an allusion to the business practices of the day. And, and that's why, you know, people would talk about this being matters of, of court or business or marketplace. But just just the fact all they're worth is is for a couple of shoes, you know? I mean, yeah. that's that's really all these people are worth to you. It's it's really it's really quite condemning. So, so you've got that, this, this matter of greed that Amos is pointing out, the, the mistreatment of the poor, the righteous. And, and I think we need to understand those terms, not only economically poor and not just not to sort of like, um, oh, what's the word? Not to, not to say that the, the poor are good because they're poor or something like that, right? Um, but, but to recognize these are the least the last in, in society that the people of Israel were commanded to look out for. So you've got that mistreatment happening in terms of the, the specifics. And then you, you said the other the category that we have is this licentiousness. And so we got about five minutes before the break. Let's, let's take a look at that licentiousness. And then I, I do want to come back and try to tie these things together and, and talk about, and we may have to do this on the other side, but talk about how these things this matter of right living is really influenced by the matter of right worship and try to tie some of those things together. So, so for right now, Pastor Hoppy, <laughs> let's, let's talk about the, the licentiousness that Amos mentions here in these verses. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll kind of, uh, if I can move from one to the other, the other, one of the other examples that is given here is this idea, uh, you know, it says they, uh, in verse eight, they lay themselves down beside every altar, right? There gives us a hint of this idolatry, right? They don't really care uh, what's being worshipped, right? But on garments taken in uh, pledge. And uh, this refers to uh, the law uh, in Exodus uh, 22, verses 22, or sorry, 26 and 27, rather, um, that uh, spoke about a practice that if you uh, took a loan from someone who was poor, who did not have a lot, uh, to put it in our modern language, sometimes they would give you their cloak, their outer garment, as a, uh, a piece of collateral. I think the word in the text is a, a pledge, is usually how it's translated. But interestingly, God had provided for that in that circumstance, if it got to the end of the day and that loan had not been paid back yet, the people had to give that cloak back to the poor person. Why? Well, because that was the only thing they had to keep them warm at night, the only thing they had to sleep on and probably pull over themselves as well. Now, Amos uh, he reveals here, or God through Amos, reveals that what they were doing instead was outright breaking this law and taking these cloaks into these false houses of worship. Uh, and some people think here there is already a, a little bit of a talk about this lying down. This could simply mean kind of being in the place, but that there might also be uh, some tones here of some uh, sexual immorality to this as well. But you get this building up again of what's going on here. It's not just that they're going uh, to the idolatrous temples. That would be enough, right? Uh, and it's not just that in those temples they're practicing uh, things that would be sexually immoral, if that would not be enough. But possibly they're doing those things literally on the cloaks of the poor that they took from them, right? So this stuff just builds up to, uh, again, each individual act seems small, but when you get the whole picture of this, uh, it's something else. Um, and so then we add to this a couple of the other details here, right, uh, that they're drinking uh, wine in these temples, uh, uh, probably idea here, you know, drinking to their full, um, and their wine, where did they get it? Well, it seems they got it again from these uh, fines they might impose upon the poor in a false judgment. So again, it's not only that you're in the temple, you're drinking, you're uh, doing things that you ought not do with your body, all of these kind of things, uh, but then again, all of this on the backs of the poor. And then we maybe get to the heart of the, the specific charge here too, or maybe the uh, one of the most uh, condemning words is, you know, we have this uh, line in here about a man and a father going in uh, to the same girl. Uh, and here probably, again, people, uh, you know, we're not told exactly in the text, but most people think this refers to uh, the practice of going into one of these false temples uh, and um, 
And in some of these temples, especially those dedicated to uh, Astarte, or uh, sometimes we hear this word Ashra or Ishtar, these are all sort of in differing regions of this area. This is sort of the same female goddess who's sort of in charge of fertility. Well, her rites, uh, her rituals uh, that they did were, uh, in, they would engage in sexual uh, things in those. And so uh, probably regarding this here, so again, not only are they, they engaging in that, which is bad enough, but then we have this thing that a father and a son are going into the same woman. And there's almost a, a hint of, you know, incestuousness here, not in the sense of that the woman is related to them, but that, right, as they're becoming each one flesh with this prostitute that would be there in the temple, uh, they are now becoming incestuous because they both become one flesh with this woman. Uh, and so, again, the things seem small, but when you pile them all together, it's some pretty atrocious stuff happening here. Yeah, and and if anyone should have known better it was Israel. They are the ones that had the Lord's Word. He had given them His law to show them what was good and right in His eyes, and, and to show them all the good that He had done for them, as we'll look at, at the other on the other side of the break. They had all this, and yet this is the way that they responded. How, how much more is their need for repentance. We're looking at Amos chapter 2, verses 6 through 16 here on Sharper Iron this morning. We need to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Thursday, October 24th, we're looking at Amos chapter 2, verses 6 through 16 with Pastor Philip Hoppe of Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota. Pastor Hoppe, prior to the break, we looked at the general categories of sin and the specific sins that Amos lays out there in verses 6 through 8 of the text. And we talked a lot about the matter of greed and mistreatment of the poor, the matter of the, the licentiousness. But, but Amos isn't only here talking about right living. He, he really is also talking about right worship. What does it mean to worship the one true God? And, and you've, you've brought some of that out already in terms of how these things would have been connected to idolatry. But help us to connect those dots. What is, I mean, is Amos only concerned about right behavior, or is there something more going on here? No, and I think you really understand this. Right in the midst of all that we were just talking about, right, all these specific sins, he throws in this line where he says, so that my holy name is profaned, right? And so this helps us to see that there's more at stake here than just the mistreatment of the poor. And we don't want to just, you know, go over that and say that's, that's nothing or not a concern we should have. It certainly is. It's, it's all over uh, the scriptures. But certainly it goes far beyond that. And what he's saying here is when you're participating in all of these things, you're profaning the name of the Lord, because the, especially here now, you know, he can lay this charge against the Israelites, uh, which he could not lay against some of the other nations. In fact, all of them, other than maybe Judah, right? He couldn't really just say, and not only are you doing this, but you're dragging my name through the mud when you're doing it, right? And this gets to this point that ultimately what he wants them to do, right, is to have this, this proper relationship with him that's expressed in proper worship, right? And God goes to great lengths in the Old Testament uh, to talk about exactly how they were to worship, to bring honor to his name, right, to fulfill uh, God's ways to fulfill, you know, the, uh, the the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, right? The second commandment of keeping God's name uh, holy. All of these kind of things that we, we have there, uh, he's getting across here to say, 
when you are in this right relationship and when you're worshiping me as I've called you to, right, namely here should be in the temple, right, around the very system that God has created, which ultimately we understand, right, pointed forward to the great sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. When that is in its proper place, right, then these other things are going to line up as well. And conversely, when those other things are not lined up, it's not just, oh, no, you mistreated the poor, but no, you've profaned my name. You have stepped outside of the relationship I have made with you in being your father, your father who saves you. Uh, You've stepped outside of that to do these things. And so it ultimately comes back to our relationship with God. And, And for us, then, uh, where we see these things uh, in our own lives, if we are convicted in any of these ways, right, it drives us back to say, "Oh man, right, I need a savior. I've, you know, I've, I've fallen short of these things. Uh, I need a savior." And, and God blessedly shows us that savior time and time again. The mistreatment of the poor, the matter of licentiousness; these are the symptoms of the deeper problem that that is there, this matter of his holy name being profaned. They've had his name put upon them. The Lord has called them his own, but that hasn't borne itself out in the the fruit of their lives. And so so you're right. I mean, we can't, we're not trying to play these two against each other. They go together. The matter of, of right worship, of right faith, then compels a person forward into taking care of the poor, of, of using God's gift of sexuality correctly in, in his God-pleasing ways in the gift of marriage, right? So these these things go together. And so when when there's a problem with one, there's there's a problem with the other. And and the prophet Amos is pointing those things out. And I think I think that's why then he makes the move that he does beginning in verse nine. After he's he's told them, look, here's what's going on. Here's the problem you've got, Israel, these three transgressions and for four. Then he says, the reason you've got this problem is because you've forgotten all of these things that God has done for you. What's going on in, oh, it looks like verses 9 through 12. That's where, where Amos begins to tell the people, this is what God has done, but you've forgotten. Yeah, so he, you know, he really takes them here on a quick... Uh, uh, lesson of of this beautiful history that God uh, had written for His people, right? Uh, beginning uh, from the time when they're in Egypt, He actually starts later. He kind of goes backwards here for a second because He deals first with the time of the conquest of the of uh, the Promised Land, and He mentions there, right, that God had destroyed the Amorites, and the Amorites uh, were were a particular tribe of the Canaanites. But in the Scriptures, they're often just sort of referenced. Uh, as a part of a whole, right? They're kind of the, uh, it's like saying I got new wheels uh, when referring to a car, right? The Amorites are kind of used in that way to say this is the Canaanites who are living in the land. Um, you know, we, we remember uh, the spies going into the, the land uh, at the uh, prior to the wilderness wandering uh, and, uh, you know, saying, gosh, you know, these, these men are huge. They're, uh, you know, they're strong, they're mighty, and we, we can't go in and take this land. Well, these are the Amorites, right, that they're talking about here. These are these uh, tall and strong men uh, that they're afraid to go to to war with. And yet here God says, you know what I did to them, right? I destroyed them. Not only did I sort of cut off the the top of them, but I went down and pulled them out by the roots as well. Um, So he says, you know, he takes this thing that seemed like it could not... Uh, be done away with it all, and he deals deals with it uh, in completion by just just destroying it completely. And this here, not as a way to brag about what he did to the Amorites, but rather as a way to remind the people again of that that action was for the Israelites. This was so they could go in and receive this land of promise that they had been waiting for since the time of Abraham. I mean, you really could say since the time they get kicked out of, Adam and Eve get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, you're sort of, there's a longing there for uh, going back to this promised land, right, uh, after they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But certainly with Abraham, it becomes more clear that that they're going to uh, have this literal land uh, given to them at one point in biblical history. So he says that, then he goes back a little bit and says, the Egyptians, right, I brought you up out of uh, the land of Egypt as well, all the, you know, the plagues uh, that were sent upon the Egyptians, the parting of the Red Sea, all of this stuff. Um, and he says, you know, this is, this is all I've done. And he says, if that's not enough, 
right, that I performed these great acts of salvation. Once I got you there, I took some of your people and I put my words in their mouth. And the, the, the progression here is kind of telling for us, right, that he kind of lists this as like, and then, you know, like, this is a, a greater thing yet. Not only did he deliver you to the promised land, but he set some apart as prophets to speak the word of the Lord. And we might say, well, gosh, parting the Red Sea seems like a lot bigger thing than putting the word of the Lord into someone's mouths. But God certainly doesn't think so, right? He, at the very least, I'd say he places these as, as equal kind of acts. Um, and then it also says, right, that he, he gives some of their young men uh, to be Nazarites, and uh, Nazarites uh, were uh, these people that took a special vow. Uh, if, if your listeners want to read more, they can, you know, go to Numbers 6. We'll teach them more about the specifics of being a Nazarite. Uh, but these, these ideas where they would be set apart uh, by a vow, they would not drink any wine or any part of the grape, they wouldn't shave their head or their beard, uh, some Nazarites in the Bible would be like Samson and Samuel, John the Baptist. Uh, but again, right, we might almost say, well, gosh, I don't know if that's a blessing or not, right, to have to undergo this special sort of form of, of uh, piety or way of living. And God says, this is awesome that I gave this to you. And he even puts in here young men. And if you think about it, young men are probably – uh, maybe the ones looking for pleasure the most in the world. Right? It might be that time of life where pleasure seems to become the greatest temptation. And, and God says, what a blessing that I set apart even some of your young men who would naturally be yearning after all sorts of pleasures, and I made them Nazarites instead. Um, and all of this, right? I did all this, I did all this. And again, what, what came of this? What, you know, what happened here after I did all that. You know, you think of it as, as you know, the uh, uh, prophet uh, Isaiah talking about, you know, building his vineyard, right? And, uh, or excuse me, I shouldn't say the prophet Isaiah talking about that, but bringing the word of the Lord where God is talking about planting this vineyard and doing everything perfect for it. And when he goes to find the harvest, there's, there's nothing good there, right? Um, it's a very similar kind of thought here in Amos. And we know those are you know, fairly contemporary uh, prophets here. So that shouldn't surprise us that God's speaking a similar word uh, through them uh, to prepare his people for what's to come. Uh, but yeah, all, all this stuff where he just tells them, here's all this stuff I did for you, all these blessings, uh, and yet you not only go against them, right, but you actually are going to attack the very blessing I gave. And so the last couple lines there, verse 12 not only, you know, uh, did you not rejoice that I made Nazarites, but you tried to coax those people into drinking wine. And not only did you not rejoice that I made some of your men prophets, but you told them, you better not prophesy. Right? We'll see later in the book, right, Amos will specifically be told this, don't prophesy here anymore. Um, but we see this often. So they take the gifts of God and, and, and they treat them poorly, and they even try to kind of just outright reject the gift by telling the very people what they're supposed to do, what makes them unique, what their vocation is. Don't do that, right? Do the opposite. Uh, and so that, that's where we see, again, the, the, the depravity here of the people given everything and yet producing uh, only sour grapes, if we want to go there. Yeah, yeah. So a couple, a couple of thoughts as, as you were talking, just to, I, I think, appreciate a little bit of the mastery of Amos's preaching here. Some of these things were, were striking me as you were, you were talking about that. Just kind of the way that the, the Lord is speaking here through Amos, right? The first thing he does is he, he rehearses what he's done for them in the past. And you talked about the conquest of the land, the Exodus event. These are the great things that God has done in the past. Then he emphasizes, this is what I'm doing for you in the present, right? And, and so and I think you're right that the matter of the Lord giving prophets and Nazarites he intends to be an even greater thing that he's doing for his people now here in this time than even what he did in the in the book of Exodus and and Joshua later on. I, I'm I'm a little reminded of uh, when when John the Baptist sends those two messengers to Jesus and asks, "Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another?" And Jesus gives him this this answer: says, "Go and tell John what you see and hear." And he he lists all these wonderful things that he's doing. The blind receive their sight, the deaf hear, the lame walk. He he says, then the dead are raised, right? And these wonderful things. Right. And then Jesus says at the end, the poor have good news preached to them. And, yeah. and it's, you hear that's like, 
well, wait, I, I thought the dead being raised was was bigger than that. But but the right. word being preached, right? And you have a, a similar thing happening here with with Amos as well. And and so just to, and the reason I bring that out is because I think it's almost like the prophet is doing a similar thing as to what he was doing in the in the first section. The way the way you described it in the first section was Amos is is telling Israel, not only did you did do this, but you even did that. Here, now, when he's describing what the Lord has done, he says, not only did the Lord do this, but he's even done that for you, right? You yeah. see that same escalation, which makes their rejection in verse 12 all the more tragic. You made the Nazarites drink wine. You, you forced them to, to sin against their vow. And you told the prophets, don't, don't talk to us. We don't want to hear the Lord's word. It's just, it's a terribly tragic situation when you see just how wonderful the Lord has been to his people, how faithful he's been over and over again. And, and they just continue to say, no, thanks. We're going to go our own way. Uh, response, Pastor Hoppy? Yeah, no, I, I think you're exactly right. And maybe just to put a little application in for us as well, right? We have the same uh, temptation to take the very things that God is is doing for us. And then sometimes, again, those ways that uh, seem quite uh, not very exciting for us, right? But just, uh, again, you know, uh, God listing the gifts he gives of, of you know, teachers and preachers and, and apostles and all those kind of things. Um, those things to us, when they come to us in the form of a pastor who uh, has, you know, uh, who, who's a sinner first and foremost, but then also may just have, you know, personality quirks and everything else, uh, we can we can too look at that and go, well, that that's not a a great gift, right? That's you know, sort of all right, yeah, it's sort of good, you know, or at best, right? Um, and in the worst case, we sometimes too then respond uh, to those that God has sent us and say, well, the one thing we don't want you to do is speak this word or speak that word because that will uh, upset this person or it'll offend that person. Um, and so, you know, it, again, you wonder sometimes, uh, like I said, later later uh, in this book and other places, we do get this where prophets are, are just told, you know, get out of here, don't prophesy. But we see this in smaller ways, right, where we are uh, the prophets of God in our in our modern day uh, are often told, uh, don't don't remain in that word that strongly, right? Move on. Uh, and, uh, you know, so we we do this as well. And when we do it, we we profane the name of our, our God as well uh, when we do those things. Mm, yeah. And that and that's an important thing to keep in mind that that. In all of this, God's holy name is being profaned. All of these good things that he gave them in his name, they are saying, we don't want it. They're doing the exact opposite. They are profaning his name. And so then verses 13 through 16 of the chapter, then this is where the prophet begins to now speak what the Lord's judgment is against the people of Israel. And, and it's pretty bad. And I'll let, you, I'll let you tell us about it, Pastor Hoppy. But one thing I want to point out that's unique in this judgment is that in the previous seven, the Lord's judgment against the three transgressions and four was fire. But that's conspicuously missing here. It's going to come back, but it's missing at this point, which which really, I think, helps to drive home what we were saying earlier. Amos is, is just getting started with this. He's really going to, he's coming now against Israel. That's where he's coming. He's missing fire at this point, but it's it's coming. So, Pastor Hoppy, what is there in verses 13 through 16 for us? Well, yeah, verse, uh, let's start with verse uh, 13 there. And we, uh, again, in the translation you read, you know, again, and, and the one that, that I've kind of used here to it, you know, there, there's this idea, he says, you know, he's going to kind of press us, press them down in their place as a cart uh, full of sheaves is, is pressed down. Now, uh, I should say, and I sadly have to admit, my Hebrew is probably not what it should be, but I did read several things that said this could go either that way, or it could say that God is weighed down, that he sort of says he's pressed down in place uh, by them. So you can look at it two ways. One, you can look at it sort of as the burden being placed upon God by the sins of the people. Um, 
or, and again, I guess I tend to think this is more the, the right way, is that now he's kind of been talking that language, right, that this is profaning his name, this is a burden upon him. And now, right, that burden uh, that has been placed upon him, he is now going to place upon uh, the people. And that's, a, again, it's a harsh word of judgment, but that's that's what it is. And, that you know, the picture here is just of a cart that's filled to the brim with a harvest, right, and the, uh, an old, kind of think of an old wood crickety cart and it's just almost buckling and probably soon will buckle uh that's kind of the picture here and he says that's what it's going to be like when i bring my judgment and isn't there this kind of interesting uh, image here that god has just spoken about all that he's done we might say he's spoken of the harvest right uh that he's given to the people and now he uses this image of the harvest to say and yet instead of that being a blessing to you right almost instead of focusing on the the actual grain in the cart now you're going to recognize that no you're more like the cart underneath it that's about to get crushed um if I if I can, Pastor Robbie, before yeah. before you move on to fourteen through sixteen, just to to comment on that that matter that you brought up on how to translate verse thirteen, because I yeah. I did a little looking too, and it it is it's it's one of those examples where where you have what's called a a hopox legomenon, which is a, a that's Greek, right? Yeah, that's that's a Greek yeah. term that means this is the only place in the Old Testament where you get this Hebrew word. And it happens sometimes in the Greek New Testament as well, where you get a Greek word that's only used there in the New Testament. And that can be very difficult to translate. And so you look at related words and you look at related languages to do the best that you can. And in verse 13, you're right. There, there's some, some disagreement as the best way to look at this. The way that, at least in, in my brief survey of English translations, I would say the majority of English translations take it is like what we read in the ESV, that it's the Lord saying, I will press you down in your place. But there are some, and, and the one that I, I noted that was, at least in my mind, the most familiar was the NASB, the New American Standard. That one does take it more like the Lord saying, I am being pressed down beneath you. And, and so I, I think that that's just a you know, I, I don't, uh, commentators fall on different sides of the issue, but just to see how, how, if that's the case, then that, that gives a, a added flavor to what, what's going on in the Lord's mind here, that when he pronounces the judgment that he's about to pronounce, it's not like he's doing it gladly. He He's right. doing it because he's bearing the sins of, of his people. This is a burden upon him. And, and ultimately we see where that burden takes him finally to the cross, as you've said several times. So just as, you know, just as a, a note, if, if some people are wondering, you know, like, well, what, what are they talking about? That's kind of where it's coming from. And that's how some commentators take it. Now, as you pointed out in the context, it, it sure does seem right that I will press you down. This is, this is just the beginning of the Lord's judgment. And he's going to lay that out more fully in verses 14 through 16. And he's going to switch from this harvest metaphor to more of a, a military picture. Um, so Pastor Robbie, if you want to, if you want to comment back on, on verse 13, feel free to, or, or go ahead and take us into verses 14 through 16. Yeah, no, I think you said, said it well. I just, yeah, I always feel that sometimes where we have those uh, places in the scripture, especially on a program like yours, that people are going to have different translations in front of them. They may, right. you know, kind of be thrown by, well, why, wait, mine doesn't even say it that way, right? And, right. And like I said, it's one of those, well, it's really this perfect, uh, wonderful example of that anywhere where even we have something where translators differ back and forth, doesn't change the meaning at all, right? It could be either, and it would be fully understandable, both in its context and, more importantly, in the overall uh, teachings of the Scriptures, right? I mean, both of those would be fine points that we could make other place from Scriptures. And so I think it's always helpful, real quick, just to say to people, right, even when there are things where someone says, well, this word is really hard to translate, it's not like if we translated it one way, it would change some teaching of the Christian faith or or otherwise, right? So I I just always think every once in a while it's good to to acknowledge those and say this is the kind of thing that even where we have these things, which is fairly infrequent, but when we do, it, it doesn't change any essential teaching. Uh, but I'll go on then to, uh, yeah, these, these last uh, few verses here. And like you said, we really do switch into a, a war scene. You know, we leave behind the harvest and the cart, and now we're uh, into, I suppose you could say, the chariots and the horses instead. 
And the nature here of the judgment that is coming is such that not even the best of warriors will be able to withstand it, right? Um, and, you know, we think, too, in our uh, day and age, when we think about people that might be um, strong or even in our own military, right, how we might say, well, this person has this characteristic or that characteristic. He just goes through them all and says, you know, basically, if you're fast, right, the first if you're swift, well, too bad, you're not going to be able to run away fast enough. And if you think that you're strong, well, you're going to realize in this moment how weak you are. And if you just kind of overall say, I'm mighty, I'm, I got everything, I can defend myself against anything, he says, nope, that's not going to work either. And he you know, goes on, right? It doesn't matter if you have a bow in your hand. Uh, again, he goes back to the, the fast, you know, kind of the one that's going to run uh, quickly, or even the one that has the war horse. None of that, uh, not being stout and hard, you know, he keeps going on here, but he says none of this is going to help. And he kind of gives this, you know, ends with this stark image that almost like, as I read it, you know, the best case scenario (laughs) in this day would be that your strongest warrior would flee away naked, right? That he'd have everything stripped of him. He'd be embarrassed. He'd be ashamed. And, uh, you know, if he if he gets out barely with his life completely naked, that would be the best case scenario uh, when God's judgment comes. Uh, and again, for I think for most of us and particularly, uh, I fear that perhaps in the in the last generation or two of Christianity, we became very uncomfortable with images of God's judgment uh, in their specificity right we don't we don't like to think of our god as one uh who uh goes to war uh and uh does so in such an overwhelming way against those who are uh refusing his grace and his mercy and those who are setting themselves up against him and yet right to uh, to ignore this would be to ignore so much of the scriptures and it would ultimately be to not let us understand the gravity of sin and the just punishment of sin. And if we don't get that, when we look at the cross and all that Christ endured there, we will see a cruel God, right, that is uh, unduly punishing his son viciously. Uh, And instead we say, no, that right there is the wages of sin, right? That is upon Christ, and it's what should have happened to you, not just in some, oh, yeah, it should have happened to me, but no, literally, God should have chased you down to the point where if you think you're fast, you would have run out of energy, and if you think you're strong, you would have seen how weak you were. That's what you deserve for your sin. And Christ, he took that very punishment upon himself in order that you might not have to endure it. And then we rejoice, right? If we don't think it was all that bad, what we got out of, uh, the saving doesn't sound all that good. Uh, But when we hear what we really deserve, which is what Amos is giving us here, then we get it. Then we say, thanks be to God when we hear of Christ. Pastor Philip Hoppe is the pastor at Peace Lutheran Church in Finlayson, Minnesota, and St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Bruno, Minnesota, helping us this morning with Amos chapter 2, verses 6 through 16. Pastor Hoppe, thank you so much for your time. So glad to be with you. Amos lays it all out right there for us. This is how bad we really deserve it. But Christ took it all in our place. Thanks be to God. It is a joy to hear that message with you every weekday morning here on KFU on Sharper Iron. I'm your pastor. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for studying with us today. Talk to you again tomorrow.